Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to Chicago. It's June 1972. A convoy of limos and cabs come to a stop outside an address on a Tony residential street. Even in the dark, the building stands out amid the brownstones. Surrounded by an imposing wrought iron fence, lined with black-suited security heavies with walkie-talkies in their hands and pistols under their shoulders, it looks more like an embassy. Good lord, did the Stones call in a favor with the ambassador? Do they have embassies in Chicago? I'm in Chicago, right? Did I take too many quaaludes on the ride here? No matter. It's midway through the tour now, and easy to forget where you are. The days are starting to blur. Or maybe that's just the quaaludes. But climbing the wide sweeping stairs, you'll get a major clue where you are. On the door is a brass plaque bearing the inscription, Si non ocelas, noni tintinare. Students of Latin will know what this means. If you don't swing, don't ring. You can only be one place, the Playboy Mansion. The scene is a party in the Great Room, or the Palace Museum as it's come to be known on the Rolling Stones tour. It's so straight that it almost seems sarcastic, with medieval suits of armor flanking the stairs and hardwood paneling that makes it look like a titillating Titanic. Such is the taste of the Lord of the Manor, one Hugh Hefner. But don't let it fool you. There's nothing straight about this place. It's well after midnight and people are careening from room to room, from the bar to the living room and down to the pool. Some pop in and out of secret passageways, a James Bond-esque detail inspired by Hefner's dear friend, the late 007 creator Ian Fleming. Champagne and Quavassier flow over the bar like water. Keith Richards is lying flat on his back in a deep, plush sofa. His slender frame is sporting brass-studded jeans, leopard-skin boots, tinted hair, and red sunglasses. He smiles at you over his tequila sunrise, or at least he's smiling at something. The game room is down a curving stairway, past the pool in the sun and sauna room, and through the beaded curtains. 
There's a pool table in the middle and a collection of neon flashing pinball machines, a computer quiz, table football, test your skill driving games, and electro dartboards. And it's all for free. No dime needed. The sound system has been captured and plugged into a portable tape recorder. Smokey Robinson competes with his flesh and blood Motown mate, Stevie Wonder, the STP opening act, who's playing some seriously funky piano on Hefner's Steinway. He's interrupted by a loud crash as somebody spills an entire drinks tray on the floor. Even the unflappable waiters are starting to lose it. An impossibly beautiful woman named Mercy stands nearby. She peers through a cascade of platinum blonde hair. She's in town for Playboy to take her picture, but her trip was made even more exciting during a brief yet passionate encounter with one of the stones, or at least someone in their orbit. And tomorrow's my birthday, too, she says. I feel just like Cinderella. That description comes courtesy of Robert Greenfield, the legendary rock journalist who was Rolling Stone magazine's dedicated Stones correspondent as a 20-something in the early 70s. He was there during those long nights at the mansion, raising eyebrows with the ladies of the house for furtively taking notes for his articles and stubbornly refusing to go completely off the rails. More than the partying, which crossed the line from pleasurable to punishing for most concerned, it was a fascinating encounter between two very different generations of counterculture leaders who were more alike than they were different. By gaining entry into the Playboy Mansion, the Stones also gained entry to a certain level of social respectability, as much as they try to deny it, and as much as their behavior there suggested otherwise. They'd spent the 60s offending the old-timers. Now they were being welcomed into their midst. What did that mean? In addition to Robert Greenfield and his never-before-heard tapes of the Stones and their exile on Main Street-era glory, we'll also be joined by his friend and fellow STP tourmate Gary Stromberg, a PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of music's greatest artists. My name's Jordan Runtog, and welcome to Stones Touring Party. Everyone knows that artists on tour arrive in each city preceded by the legend of their own publicity. But it cuts the other way as well. For rock bands on the road, cities come pre-hyped with a legend of their own. And Chicago's legend was a mixed bag. Sure, it was the central blues hub north of the Mason-Dixon line and home to Chess Records, the seminal R&B label that brought the world Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, and Muddy Waters. But the Stones arrived on June 18, 1972, a hot, windy, smoggy, stinking, bristly hog of a day, with something other than a sense of joy in their hearts. The band were due to play three dates at the International Amphitheater, a great barn of a place that bills itself as the world's largest building in terms of total area. Even if it isn't, it's certainly the world's ugliest. It had recently played host to a livestock show just prior to the Stones' arrival, and the thick, rich aroma of manure still lingers. The Stones had played there in 69, and Keith doesn't remember it fondly. Here he is talking to Robert Greenfield, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. 
Chicago is a strange town. For a start, it doesn't have a good place to play. Yeah. It doesn't seem to. I think the only good one is too small. Or something like that. I mean, all I know is that every time you play Chicago, it's a fucking barn that stinks. Making matters worse is the smell from the nearby stockyards where fresh meat was hung upside down and drained of blood before being ground into pieces, pressed into patties, and broiled into burgers that fed America. Chicago had a reputation for blood in the street. It was here less than four years earlier, the cops beat the flesh of young protesters at the Democratic National Convention, cracking skulls with their nightsticks as network news cameras broadcast the carnage into living rooms across the nation all amid chance of the whole world is watching. The convention stage, where politicians hurled accusations and slurs at one another, is the very same one where the Stones will perform. Chicago cops, not looking for a repeat of the 68 riots, have the city locked up tight like an occupying army, a particularly savage one at that. The day after the Stones arrive, the Chicago Tribune reports that the FBI is hard at work on determining the identities of five Chicago cops moonlighting as assassins. They're allegedly responsible for the six dead black men found decomposing in the Chicago River. The rise in violence quotient of a major city like Chicago is like a whiff of strong smelling salts or good cocaine. It clears the head, kickstarts the blood, and generates all kinds of razor-sharp thinking including the STP squad's plan to protect the Stones. Even the band's formidable bodyguard, Big Leroy Leonard, is on high alert. Man, this is the kind of town you can get yourself mugged right on the street in broad daylight, he tells Robert Greenfield. <laughs> mugged if you're lucky. Adding to the logistical headaches is the fact that Chicago's playing host to a McDonald's convention at that very moment and all the desirable and defensible hotels are congested with 800 burger executives, all trying to figure out how to make the Big Mac safe for America. Several other trade shows were occurring simultaneously, meaning rooms were in short supply. Plus, let's be honest, most of the finer establishments in town weren't exactly thrilled at the prospect of hosting rock stars. The thinking went, if the bands themselves didn't destroy the place, then their fans surely would. So the STP tax squad labored to find a location for the stones that was both secure and geographically convenient. The answer was a rather unorthodox one, the Playboy Mansion. You know, the house that Hef built, the Porn Emporium, the Bunny Abbey, the American Dream House, or a towering monument to sexual exploitation and misogyny, depending on your point of view. So while the rest of the STP family are holed up at a Hyatt by the airport, some 30 miles away from the action, Hef graciously agrees to host the Stones and their inner coterie. They worked in Chicago. They stayed in the mansion, this whole separate book, uh, movie, <laughs> documentary. Gary, what do you, they were there three, three nights. Three nights. Three nights. Yeah. I mean, this is the insanity of this tour. It was inconvenient. They were not near anybody else, no support. Yeah, fine. Jagger must have said okay on this one. He had to. It was very nice man, to advise. I mean, you know, because it was the nicest place we could stay in Chicago, and we didn't know him. It was very hospitable. Did you, have, did you speak to him at all? Oh, 
Located on a leafy street in Chicago's moneyed Gold Coast district, it was certainly big enough. In fact, Heff would later lease it to the Art Institute of Chicago to be used as a dorm. And the high gates out front made it reasonably impenetrable to those wishing the stones harm. Hugh Hefner, the man responsible for it all, had recently hosted a TV show called Playboy After Dark, where bands like The Grateful Dead and Deep Purple performed in his living room. But this was merely a soundstage replica, and the bonhomie was similarly faked for the television cameras. No, Hef wasn't exactly in the habit of inviting stoned-out rockers into his home. But when the STP tax squad called and explained their predicament, he said, sure, come on in. He's not really much of a fan, but he's crossed paths with Mick at L.A. parties once or twice. And he very much liked his appearance in the Nick Rogue arthouse film Performance. As Hefner told Robert Greenfield in 1972, the main purpose of the Playboy Mansion was to foster a salon culture of social figures and celebrities alike. So why not have the Stones? The, the mansion is a kind of a curious combination. It is first and foremost my home, but it's a very special home so that nobody stays there if I don't want them to stay there. And the people that do stay there are, are either people who I know personally or in close friends or someone who I may not yet know, but who, uh, whose work I admire. But with the Stones, even in that context, having the Stones there was something you know, rather special uh, on both sides, I think. Hefner was the one who wanted them to stay there, not the other way around. Everybody wanted a piece of the Stones, and the Stones were very selective in who they would allow in, and they allowed Hefner to let them stay at his place. You know, you would not have thought that that was the case. They were the stars, not Hefner. And the Playmates had nothing to do with that decision, no. <laughs> Despite the novelty of having Playmates for housemates, the Stones are feeling low when they show up at the Playboy Mansion just before midnight. They've come directly from Minneapolis, where that night's concert was marred by overzealous cops with canisters of tear gas, and the smell remains a faint tickle in their nostrils. More like jumping gas flash tonight, Mick joked warily as they whisked aboard their private plane afterwards. Their mood hadn't improved by the time they arrived at the mansion, where the vibes were decidedly bad. An attempt had been made on Hefner's life shortly before the Stones' visit, and the phalanx of armed guards made the place look like the state home of some Eastern European dictator. They're so strict that Charlie Watts, arguably the most nondescript stone and certainly the most low-key, was mistakenly barred from entering at first. Once that gets straightened out, they enter to find the couches in the great front hall awash with beautiful but bored-looking women watching a screening of a dull X-rated movie called Is There Sex After Death? It all felt simultaneously stuffy and tawdry. If they weren't so wiped, they would have turned around and left then and there. Charlie Watts actually did, preferring to stay somewhere else down the street. But for the rest of the band, their fatigue outweighed their distaste. Guitarist Mick Taylor explains. I suppose I could have got very critical about it. I was just exhausted when I got there. All I was concerned about was sort of resting because it was midway through a very strenuous tour. The energy just wasn't meshing and the stones wanted out. But then their bodyguard, Big Leroy Leonard, takes them aside. Hey, have you guys actually taken a good look around this place? 
The Stones had not toured the 70-room, 30,000-square-foot residence, and this was a crucial error. You see, this meant that they hadn't seen the oval-shaped indoor swimming pool and underwater tiki bar, also accessible by trap door from the wood-paneled living room. They hadn't seen the steam rooms or sunrooms or gymnasium, nor the bowling alley or child's fantasy of a game room with flashing pinball machines with free replays and a full-size pool table and state-of-the-art video games, primitive by today's standards, but mind-melting to a stoned-out member of the STP entourage. And they hadn't seen the chef, permanently on call 24 hours a day to cook you whatever you desire in the impossibly well-stocked kitchen. Yes, the Stone's bodyguard gets them to open their minds and consider the possibilities, which were fairly limitless. After the so-so hotels they've been sequestered in, the mansion is a place to let go. It's like Disneyland for sense freaks, an Epicurean island where your every wish comes true. To better understand exactly how stunning this was to the Stones, who'd already been world famous for the better part of a decade, it's important to know where they came from. Bassist Bill Wyman, for example, was the son of a bricklayer. His upbringing was practically Dickensian compared to this. We had guest lighting at home until five years before I got married. So 15 years, 16, 17, 17 years ago. We had guest lighting, we had no hot water, we had no, no bathroom, the toilet was outside. And um, I never had a bathroom until I'd been married two years and I moved into a flat. That was about 65. Never had a bathroom in the house. This is all in London. Or a toilet in the house. In London. Yeah. Or hot water in the house running. Mick had a more middle-class childhood, but he and Keith spent the band's early years sharing a legendarily squalid apartment with founding Rolling Stone Brian Jones. They lived together communally in this awful flat in Chelsea, Edith Grove, okay? Nobody cleaned anything. They lived like animals. The kitchen was the worst of it. Dishes would pile up until the food scraps congealed into substances that didn't seem of this earth. Keith would describe the greasy, discarded pans as junked pyramids of foulness that no one could bear to touch. A fourth roommate, who shall remain nameless, would welcome the trio home from gigs late at night by standing at the top of the stairs and showering them with his own fresh urine. Mick and Keith's mothers would sometimes come by and make a valiant effort to straighten up, but it would never last. Lights were switched off immediately whenever dates were brought back to prevent the lady from getting a glimpse of the place and fleeing in terror. Bill Wyman, a frequent guest, remembered it well. Too well. Those were really amazing times. You can never get it across to people how difficult, how weird those times were. You know. Brian and Keith were starving in the winter of 62, 63. They were starving, man. They had no money, they had no heating in their flat, no food. I don't know what they were doing, but they were existing. And that's about it. If Charlie ever came, they would bum a few bob off him to go and get some pies. And all I ever saw him eat was like apple tarts that you could buy for sevenpence or something. It was really sick. And the place stank and the furniture was broken. And, uh, and they had this great collection of empty milk bottles with various forms of and ages of mold. They had this, like 40 of them in the kitchen, all in lines. Growing? Yeah, growing. Yeah. Never forget that. And they used to write with the candle on the ceiling, with the black of the candle. You know, they used to get a candle, light it, and they used to write all these things on the ceiling in this black smoke. 
there's all this writing all over the ceilings in black. It's amazing. You, you never find anywhere to sit. You know, standing was quite hard because there was rubbish and everywhere. Oh, it was terrible in there. It really was bad. They'd come a long way in the intervening decade, but you never truly shake poverty once it's hit your system. It stays with you, forever becoming the point against which all other life experiences are measured. For Bill Wyman, contrasting the Playboy Mansion with Edith Grove, or the unending string of subpar STP hotels for that matter, was disorienting to say the least. It wasn't like a hotel, it was completely different to a hotel. It wasn't even a house. But it was, um, it was kind of your own, you had your own room, you know, had a really nice room there. And when you went in the room, you had everything you wanted in that room, you know, it wasn't like anywhere else, it wasn't even like home. You had a hairdryer, you had a, a woman's hair. You know the thing that went yeah, over the head? <coughs> you had one of those, you had a, razors there, you had a whole cabinet, solid full with cosmetics and uh, aftershave and uh, soaps and, I mean, it was everything, you know, hair dryers, you had makeup mirrors. <laughs> yeah, you had stereo system, um, you had a wake-up radio with a clock, you know, and stuff like you had a um, sport tape recorder, all done in stereo, with radio and um, record player, and you had books there, and I mean, you could just go to your room and stay there for two years if you wanted to. <clears throat> I'm sure people do that there, you know. And just phone out if you wanted anything, whatever it might be, you could get it. It was fantastically organised. It's like he was very American. Super American, yeah. After taking it all in, the Stones decided, what the heck, let's stay at the Playboy Mansion. But if a good night's sleep was what they were looking for, they wouldn't find it here. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. 
Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A pair of snakeskin boots rest on a polished hardwood table. The table belongs to Hugh Hefner. The boots belong to Keith Richards. His scrawny scarecrow frame is sprawled across the couch in a wood-paneled hall the size of a football field. He takes in the increasingly surreal scene before him. The biggest British rock band in the world is currently at play in the temple of the American dream, Chicago's Playboy Mansion. Despite the slightly awkward arrival, the Stones have made themselves at home. Keith openly muses about painting his room black, you know, a little something for Heft to remember them by. No one's sure if he's joking. As far as Keith is concerned, the man of the house must have known what he was getting himself into. There's a few possibilities as far as he's concerned. You know, we're just completely uncouth louts that would have sort of tried to destroy the place, in which case he would have thrown us out. Or we'd be very boring uh, musicians that would sit around their bedrooms working out a new song or something all the time, in which case that wouldn't bother him. Or we'd liven it up. We happen to be at that point in the tour where we were able to do that, you know. Hugh Hefner, for one, is delighted that the ice has been broken. Although I had met Mick uh, a couple of times before, neither one of us knew you know, one another that well. Obviously, I had good vibes about it in general or would not have said uh, yes in the first place, but neither of us knew exactly what to expect. So indeed, uh, the, you know, the first evening there was a kind of uh, period of adjustment, and uh, I think it really just turned into a ball. The music signaled the changeover. Like a guerrilla army coming out of the mountains to seize the local radio station, the Stones convince Heft to get a hold of his personal electrician, who links up Keith's cassette player with the house stereo. Soon, the big band crooners are gone, as Aretha, Jerry Lee, and the coasters come spilling out of the speakers. The baggage man and the Stones' bodyguards start dancing with one another, and the chaos starts to spread. It's turning into a rock and roll sock hop, as STP people arrive in droves. Robert Greenfield and Gary Stromberg are among them. It was astonishing to be in the mansion. The mansion was the stately brownstone. In Xanadu did a Pleasure Dome decree. There were all these arcade games, like a pinball machines. Yeah, and 
you know, food was served 24-hour-a-day kitchen. You can order whatever you wanted. They would prepare it for you. Yeah, there was no menu or anything. Just order what you want. We'll get it. Should you ask the butler what's for dinner, you'll get an amused anything you like. Well, nothing special. What do you got? We have everything. What do you prefer? Uh, how about know, some fish? Baked, broiled, fried, cold. Lobster tails, perhaps. Would lobster tails suffice? He's only too happy to bring it to you. Bassist Bill Wyman spent most of his time in the game room trying to break the high score. Games room is fantastic downstairs in the pool. But, I mean, you could, it, it was set up, that place was set up to do anything you wanted to, any time of the day or night, wherever you want. You could play table tennis, you could play billiards, you could play. There was 30 different games. He's got on the top of these pinball machines, he's got these oh, you got record scores, you know, the top 10 record scores ever on that. They're fantastic scores, I mean, 130. Thousand, you know, on one. I got a good score one day, and the next day I found my name about fifth position on one of these boards. Bill would strike up a kinship with Hef based on a shared passion for backgammon. They'd spend hours sitting at a long wooden table like barons, playing contest after contest. But now Hef's deep in conversation with Mick Jagger, black briar pipe in one hand and Pepsi Cola in the other. He holds court beneath a huge Picasso canvas of a reclining female nude, naturally. Keith Richards stifles a laugh as he looks on from the couch. Hef and Mick, on the surface, is such an incongruous pairing. The quintessential 50s hepcat, self-styled sophisticate, and the captain of the roving pirate nation of 70s rock, together at last. Look at Hefner, Keith says, chuckling into his tequila sunrise. Making conversation, bridging the generation gap, he's my father's dream. But the gap isn't as wide as he might expect. Mick and Hef are two very different kinds of outlaws, but outlaws just the same, presenting two distinctly different alternative lifestyles for two distinctly different times. According to Hefner, the common ground wasn't hard to find. You know, there was some, uh, there, perhaps some of the basis for the contact or the communication between you and the Stones and Mick was the fact that both of you had essentially rejected prescribed codes of behavior and in different ways of kind of formulating. Yes, I think, I, think, I think a part of it was Playboy may seem to represent the establishment, and that's just the result of having been around for, uh, you know, 18 or 20 years and having been terribly successful. In, you know, the actual fact of the matter is that Playboy as a concept and Playboy as a success was a form of counterculture or an alternate lifestyle. That's really at the heart of what Playboy was all about. I mean, that really is what Playboy is all about and what I'm all about. I was raised in a very Puritan, Orthodox, Methodist home. And Playboy really came out of uh, my own deep rebellion to that. The Stones came out of too. They came out of England, you know, gray establishment England. uh... You know, it's almost because the counterculture of of the moment is it's much more reflected in the rock music, an aggressive, destructive anti-establishment kind of thing, to talk about anything like that is so materialistically oriented and uh, leisure time and fun oriented as Playboy as a counterculture thing doesn't ring true unless you think about it a little bit. To Keith and the rest of the Stones, Hefner's attempt to liken himself to them in their scene just seemed laughable, the attempt of an aging man desperate to prove his potency. But young rebels so often forget that those in charge, the dreaded establishment, were once the new kids too, filled with vim and vigor and out to change the world. Most fail and disappear without a trace. 
but succeeding can be a crueler fate. Hefner's been around long enough to see that through acceptance, all revolutions, from social movements to fashions to rock bands, gradually drift towards the middle of the road. First of all, it's very special and belongs to a little group alone. Mm -hmm. Then it spreads. I mean, you certainly saw that with the Beatles, where it was like a kid thing, and then, you know, until it was the heads of state. And then, when it reaches that level, the need for their own special thing, for the young, must essentially then move on and discover something else that can be their own. I mean, otherwise, each generation has a need to not simply be a carbon copy of their parents. It may not be rebellion in each generation as we've seen it in the last uh, one or two, uh, you know, a real rejection of so many of the basic values of the previous generation, but a variation on that theme has always existed. It has to exist to some degree. That's the way you would establish in subconsciously your independence. You say, I'm me. I'm not just my father or my mother. I'm me. The Stones don't want to know that this piteous dinosaur will one day be them. Sooner or later. And the way things are going, probably sooner. Splayed on the polished leather couch, being served trays of sweet, creamy chocolate eclairs by a butler, it's becoming hard for Keith to deny the band's own drift towards the middle. His presence in this very room proves that they've gained the kind of social respectability that no other group could lay claim to. Just a few short years ago, Keith wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near the place. Some member of the black-suited, walkie-talkied, presidential-caliber security operatives manning the front door would have taken him aside and told him to get a haircut, a job, and a new attitude, and then try coming around. And yet, now here he is. He was still surprised when talking about it with Robert Greenfield a short time later. Here he is, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was sweet. Do you think you would have been let in there in 69 or 69? You know I, mean? I don't know the reasons for that. I don't know when he reached a point when he would have accepted the Rolling Stones staying at his mansion. No, I mean, it's very difficult to say if he'd have let us in there in 69. Probably not, you know? I mean, would you have wanted to go in 69? I wouldn't have felt any different about it in 69 than I would in 76. It's a comfortable bed, you know, and a uh, few distractions. It makes a change from a hotel anywhere, you know, to stay anywhere that gives a, offers a break from a straight hotel, you know. Still, I mean, I thought that a lot of it was a joke, I mean, for you. I mean, because a lot of it was It really was. It was funny. It, you know, it gave you a chance to be light-hearted for a few hours. You know. It was a very ambiguous sort of respectability, you know. I mean, a house that is uh, a dormitory for a hundred and something bunnies, and, uh, and at the same time, the house of this very liberal gentleman, you know, I can't really put him all together, you know, I don't know, he just borrows a little bit from everywhere, you know, so sticks it all together. I mean, Hefner was really interesting. He was so white, you know, so from another era, 50s, broken all these sexual and cultural taboos, changed America very substantively, and it sounds like a joke, but had really good writing in Playboy. Really good people wrote for Playboy. Really good journalists, really good novelists. He paid top dollar, and so he could get the writing. I don't know if anybody read the articles, but that's neither here nor there. It's Gary's point all over again. 
Hef wanted to get his hip ticket punched, and he could only do it by having the Stones stay with him. And they were up. For, it's like Gary said, yeah, we'll do this. And they weren't deferential to him at no. all. <laughs> Not at all. No. <laughs> no. You, go, you, you observe this, and you think that this was Hefner, like, was worked his way into the being near the Stones rather than the Stones working their way into the mansion. <laughs> they, they were so unimpressed. Yeah, so unimpressed. They weren't particularly nasty or mean. No, no, no. It just didn't mean anything to them. They were the Stones, and they could go anywhere they wanted, do anything they wanted, and everybody would kowtow to them, including Efner. Bill Wyman was certainly skeptical at first, but he was won over by Hef's charm and patience while teaching him backgammon. I was kind of ridiculed the Playboy thing, and I, I still do in a way. I always thought of Hefner as the pompous, big ego-searching guy with the pipe that didn't really look real, you know, and wasn't very strong or anything. When I met him, I still thought it for the first half an hour because I never really sat and talked to him, but I saw him that he was in our presence. And um, during those few days, I found him to be a very nice person, uh, very friendly, and nothing was too much trouble. A very good host, absolutely. You always felt, or I did, always felt that he did, he liked you. There was no kind of keeping away or scenes going on, bad scenes, I mean, any bad vibes. And he would spend um, an hour or so teaching someone to play a, a game. No hang up, no, I'm too busy. There was none of that scene. Hef, meanwhile, apparently never learned Bill's name. He was a little shaky with the non glimmer twin stones. One of the guys was uh, learning backgammon, and uh, I happened to be rather good at the game. So part of one good evening, uh, you know, just show him some of the more subtle moves. Did you speak to Charlie at all? You know, the drummer, Charlie Watts? Do you have any recollection? I'm not sure. Who was it that was playing? I'm not Bill, sure. That's Bill Wine in the big Yeah, I'm not positive. Guitarist Mick Taylor, the new guy in the band, never got any FaceTime with Hef. And he was kind of okay with that. I, I didn't even meet you, Hefner, you see. I didn't meet him once. Didn't speak to him at all. I saw him playing backgammon with Bill. So right? But I didn't uh, meet him or speak to him. Yeah. I think pe- I think people tend to get put off because of uh, what it stands for, you know, the whole Playboy philosophy. Ah, yes, the philosophy, without which the intellectual elite might confuse Hef for a petty smut peddler. For all of Hugh Hefner's intellectualism and highfalutin manifestos heralding a bold new era of personal freedom, few would forget, or forgive, that this freedom only extended to men, and his empire was built on flesh. To some, especially those in the burgeoning national organization of women, the mansion might as well have been the stinking stockyards on Chicago's south side. But you'd have to ask the bunnies and playmates about that. And you easily can, because they're everywhere. The mansion contains a two-floor dormitory, which houses upwards of two dozen young professional women, all in possession of what toothpaste ads would describe as a winning smile. They're soldiers in the Playboy army. The Playmates outrank the bunnies by virtue of having appeared with a staple across their midriff in the center spread of the magazine, thus providing a momentary distraction for those hungry for the latest Nabokov short story or an expose on rising divorce rates. It costs bunnies $50 a month to live in the mansion, or about $420 in today's dollars, plus food, of course. They're forbidden from having male visitors or consuming alcohol unless Hef himself offers. They're even subject to memos, including this one that arrives during the Stone's stay. 
June 20th, 1972. Dear Bunnies, when was the last time you took a really good look at yourselves and your job? Have you considered how important you are to us? You, each and every one, make Playboy different and exciting. The bunny concept has been responsible for the founding of an empire. The memo then rambles on for seven paragraphs about the rules of bunny punctuality before concluding, Get your acts together, ladies. We're running a business here. Keep in mind that no one else would take the time or make the effort we do. You'd be out the door. In other words, watch it or go back from whence you came. Hugh Hefner views it all a little more altruistically. He sees the mansion as a safe haven, offering women with limited options a lucrative alternative to bad life situations. What the bunnies really are, are a cross-section of young, physically attractive girls who are drawn to the job for a variety of reasons, among which are that it is an ideal job for a girl without any other kind of experience to get away from home, to get out of a lousy marriage, etc. There were Cinderella stories, to be sure. Certainly some did escape trouble in their past, only to become figures of renown in multiple senses, gracing the walls of army barracks and auto body shops. Indeed, certain members of the STP crew, including Robert Greenfield, found themselves starstruck in their presence. What was going on at the mansion was, it was, you know, hot and cold playmates running in and out and running out. They were dressed, I'm not going there, but I mean, if you were a kid, I always refer to myself as a kid, if you were living in America back then, you knew them. It's like, oh my God, January 1960. You know, you know, if you were that, if you were that, oh my God, I saw her when I was in high school. They were all around and they were keeping score of which one of them had slept with more Rolling Stones than the other. The ladies of the Playboy Mansion were aggressive. Some of the braver ones walk straight up to the STP head honchos and say, Joy tells me you're a bitch. Dominate me? It was chauvinism of the first order coming from all sides. Hef had some thoughts on this. The star fucker phenomenon is something that is older than I am, and that is just a coarse term for something that we're talking about that is a way that a person lives out a part of their fantasy life. Sinatra, it's all the same. Absolutely. I mean, there, these are all... Matter of fact, the, the Sinatra becomes a much better application in terms of, you know, a, a previous generation. That Because that, that's exactly what's going on. In other words, it is a variation on that. Then you have to go beyond that in terms of implications, in terms of lifestyle, etc. But of course, also, that's a part of what, in variation, goes on there. Other times, too, because they're living up to a variation on the theme related to Playboy. You know, there is a lot of sex at the house. Oh, yeah, we, got to, we have 25 girls living in the house in the dormitory. There is, however, and this is often a disappointment to other people who arrive, no kind of organized sort of, uh, you go with him, uh, you know, nothing. There, there is not even the vague pseudo-prostitutional element anywhere in, in the Playboy thing. Just because, uh, for me, that is it's just a person, you know, it maybe is one half morality and one half personal turnoff. Uh, it's all individual initiative. As a matter of fact, Gloria Steinem did a thing like that when she, she did a, a, a so-called interview with me that wound up being 99% her fantasies and 1% or whatever, you know, the, the, the actual interview. But she started out with a story about a guy arriving at the house, and as soon as he arrived, uh, the Playboy executive asked him if he'd like a bunny and sending him a bunny uh, to his room, and half an hour later on the phone, well, how was it? Well, that's, you know, bullshit. 
In his 2010 memoir, Life, Keith Richards observes that the Rolling Stones, quote, worked with the lowest pimps to the highest, the highest being Hefner, a pimp nonetheless. His opinion was only slightly more generous when speaking to Robert Greenfield back in 1972. Arguably more wounding to their host, Keith was certain that the Stones' visit was the funkiest the Playboy Mansion had ever been, and that they were the ones who brought the debauchery, looseness, and fun. I mean, you could just tell it the day we walked in that that place is very rarely like that, just from the way people were acting. And uh, I should think that an ordinary evening in the mansion is Hefner sitting under the spotlight playing backgammon with Frank Sinatra on the stereo computer hi-fi at volume number one, you know. Hef took offense to the notion that he didn't set the tempo for swinging in his home. Greenfield offered him a chance for rebuttal, and the 46-year-old fought manfully to regain his reputation as a sex god amidst younger, more virile men, who outnumbered him five to one. They aren't aware of what the grounds are like when they weren't there. Mm -hmm. Free and open sex is commonplace. In terms of uh, fucking, there was a lot of fucking going on. I mean, a lot of people were getting it on in all kinds of places Mm -hmm. in the house. Is that usual or unusual? I've only been there with stones, so I don't know. Uh, it's neither usual nor unusual. It is usual that there's a lot of fucking going on around the house. But not in the kind of intense, hyper kind of gotta-get-it-on kind of thing that was going on during those three days. But I don't think they really believe, I don't think Keith really believes, that it just was their show while they were there. You see, you don't say that if you believe it. You say it when you're kind of overwhelmed by what's happening. Essentially? When it's essentially kind of... More than you expect? Yeah. Hefner was similar to Mick Jagger in that he possessed unusual levels of self-awareness. Both understood that they lived lives that existed chiefly in daydreams. As such, each constantly tried to calculate how they were being perceived, from the public at large down to the person across the table. Heft developed a theory that the Playboy mystique distorted his own image, creating a pair of distinct but inaccurate personas. See, that's another curious thing related to the fantasies that have to do with me and Playboy. Mm-hmm. See, they're actually, they take two distinct forms. One is that we must be into, and that I personally must be into, something related to sex that was personally invented. I mean, there's a direct parallel with the thing you were talking about. Right, right. So you're doing some kind of sexual act that's never been done before. Then there is a reaction to that that is also very popular, which which is a kind of thing where a significant part of the population cannot stand that thought. And therefore, if there is a rejection of it that takes the form of, well, it's really all Pepsi-Cola and popcorn, or it's really just a big business, or he's queer. And those are all very understandable because that's the kind of thing of, nobody can have it as good as that seems to be, so I'm going to find something that makes it possible for me to survive. Mm-hmm. The truth is closer to the former than the latter. One of the reasons for the existence of Playboy is the magazine and the lifestyle described there, which obviously has significant elements of fantasy in it, are my fantasies, my adolescent fantasies when I grew up. And what I didn't imagine would occur when I began publishing the, the, the damn thing is that it became so preposterously successful that the fantasies became for me a reality. My world and the house there and here is filled with some of those beautiful, physically beautiful ladies in the world. And then we go from there and say, but nonetheless, even in that prior frame of reference, those three or four days were something a little more intense, ongoing, out in the open, than is usual. Uh, We do have our scenes from time to time, and, you know, they may be in the Roman bath or wherever. The Roman baths, or Hef's private pool-sized jacuzzi, 
has been an object of intrigue for the STP crowd since they arrived. It represents the ultimate inner circle, a massive holy grail of social acceptance capable of fitting 25 people. If riding in a limo with even just one of the stones was a gas, imagine being naked in Hugh Hefner's personal tub with the band and a bunch of models. Once the idea is floated, it becomes hard for anyone to think of anything else. Some of the ladies giggle and lean over to Hef, asking if it's okay if they could. And he says yes. What else is Hugh Hefner going to say? Then there was some scene where the Stones and Hefner were smoking dope, I'm sure with playmates naked in the jacuzzi, and they were all eyeing one another, waiting for the orgy to start, but nothing happened. I was in the jacuzzi. Oh, I, yeah, I got me. my way into the jacuzzi. With the Stones and Hef? One of the Stones, and I don't remember who, maybe it was Keith, I don't remember that, but I got my way into the jacuzzi. That was my goal while I was there. Once it becomes clear that there will be no orgy in his tub, Hef retires to his private quarters with a lady on each arm. They settle in to watch some videotapes in his enormous circular bed, which rotates and vibrates and has more knobs and buttons than a Boeing 747 cockpit. With Hef in the middle smoking his pipe, it looks like some absurd parody of suburban domesticity. Leave it to Beaver on DMT. It might be noon, but Hef's ready to say goodnight. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. 
Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry, my light, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The madness had been going full tilt inside the mansion for several days. It intensifies after midnight when Hefner's up and about. But what is midnight anyway? Day and night have long since lost their meaning. This is partially due to the absence of sunlight. Like a casino, the shades are permanently drawn, casting the interiors into permanently party-ready darkness. And the drugs certainly don't help either. The Stones tour doctor, who was never exactly stingy with his prescriptions, is dangerously close to what we might now term a sex addict. He's frequently indisposed, and in these delicate moments, the STP coterie take great pleasure in rifling through his bag and helping themselves to his pharmacological goodies. And Hef, good host that he is, has a plentiful stash as well. So take a pill to relax, maybe a little coke to make everything a little sharper, perhaps some grass to take the edge off the coke, and then a little tequila to give the whole buzz some depth. Now after several days of this, it's easy to see why the whole scene is starting to feel kind of spaced out. When Robert Greenfield asks Mick Jagger for his memories from the mansion a short time later, the singer comes up short. What did you think of the mansion? I can't think of anything. I can't okay. remember the mansion. Okay. It was a bit of a loaded, actually. That was, a, <laughs> that was a bit sort of memory blank. Whether he's serious or just doesn't want to say anything incriminating on tape remains to be seen. Mick Taylor, on the other hand, is a little more forthcoming. It was just good fun, you know. It was, I mean, put it this way, if, if every hotel that we have stayed in in America on that tour would have been the same, same as that, we would have been absolutely exhausted and wouldn't have had any strength to have done a rock and roll tour. Really? But it was a nice sort of halfway house. <laughs> they get evangelical about the craziness. One of the waiters, a young kid trying to earn his stripes with the visiting rock stars, keeps telling everyone how much he likes to get high. Someone in the STP contingent, clearly smelling BS, decides to give him something else to smell. The next time the waiter enters, carrying a full tray of tequila sunrises, they dash over and crack an amyl nitrate capsule under his nose. The waiter smiles to show he's hip before the rush hits his frontal cortex like a tornado. Then he's off, wheeling and staggering, sending the tray crashing to the floor in stoned super slow-mo. Keith Richards, ever the gentleman, crouches to the floor and gives him a hand with the mess as soon as he stops laughing. 
Hef is ready to fire the poor guy before the Stones intervene en masse in his behalf. He wasn't the only member of Hefner's staff to indulge. The ladies in residence seem to be exploiting a loophole in Hef's no-drinking policy by openly soliciting every other substance in the physician's desk reference. Got any beans? One asked Robert Greenfield. Beans? You know, quaaludes. They're my second favorite drug. The first is made obvious by the tiny silver spoon that hangs from a chain around her neck. The bunnies like to get high in pretty much every way imaginable, but mostly through the use of these hypnotics, which respectable America is just swinging into in the summer of 72. For the uninitiated, quaaludes insert a warm and fuzzy feeling into that portion of the brain that usually inhibits action. They're great for falling down, sleeping with people you might not otherwise speak to, and forgetting your own name. There's a strong case to be made that quaaludes are the drug of the year for 1972, much as 1967 was a good year for LSD, and 1969 was the year that coke took off. During the Stone stay, the women of Playboy Mansion will have all the best to smoke, sniff, and pop. This all surprises Robert Greenfield. In the twilight of the 60s, such behavior was the purview of freaks and fringe dwellers. Using drugs, or at least the right kind of drugs, was the sign of a free-spirited seeker. Getting high might as well have been short for getting on a higher plane of consciousness. Drugs made you enlightened. At least that's what longtime heads told themselves. By breaking the law and ingesting this pseudo-sacred sacrament, you were opting out of the world as it was and embarking on a voyage of self-discovery, one that would benefit yourself and, ultimately, humanity. Greenfield couldn't be sure, but this didn't seem to be the goal of the women in rabbit attire before him. He found himself confronting two potentially harmful biases simultaneously. One, maybe the bunnies were more switched on, adventurous, and intelligent, or at least weird, than he had originally assumed. Or maybe drugs didn't make you a superior being. Perhaps it was a bit of both. Stone's guitarist Mick Taylor was having the same internal debate. I'd never seen people um, be so stoned and talk so straight. Because they weren't, I mean... The things they talked about. Yes, exactly. The level of conversation was so trivial, you know. I mean, they weren't particularly bright or intelligent. I mean, it was amazing to see that drugs had made no change in their lives. They were, they were right. talking about hairdressers and, you know, toenail polish and things like that. I mean, that's one of the myths that have been exploded, isn't it? I mean, drugs don't really do that much for you. They only sort of enhance what's already there, you know. But in the beginning, In some cases, they, they can make people completely mindless, you know. Greenfield discussed this trend in drug use with the Stones' resident expert on the subject, Keith Richards. Here they are, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. For me, that was like some kind of real insight into what the change between 69 and 72. 69 people who would get high in America were freaks. They were crazy. Now everybody's getting Everybody, high. Yeah, it's, it's spreading. Maybe doing that drives them to it. Doing, that kind of gig? Yeah, doing that kind of gig drives them to They look upon the actual sort of hours that they're working as a 
a fucking dragon, a boar, you know. But they do it for the advantages of having somewhere comfortable to live and a pool to swim in. Keith was arguably the most enthusiastic participant in the hedonism of the Playboy Mansion. He was rivaled only by Bobby Keys, the sax player in the Stones' touring horn section. Together, they became a sort of alternate universe evil glimmer twins. Their bonds seemed almost faded. They were born just minutes apart in February 1943. It was a match made in, well, never mind where. They first became inseparable after an incident that went down during the Stones' 1970 tour of Europe. Some guy in Sweden kept harassing Keys at lunch, so Keith hit him across the head with a bottle and then persuaded the police to arrest the guy while he was still semi-conscious. Keys repaid the favor a few stops later by asking a hotel manager if he could stop the drilling noise on the street outside so that Keith's baby son could get some sleep. When the hotel manager informed Keyes that street noise wasn't his department, Keyes headed to the hotel kitchen, where he began dropping valuable pieces of crockery on the stone floor one by one until the noise outside abated. Ever since, the pair have been gleeful co-conspirators on the road, spurring each other to dizzying new lows of debauchery. Bobby pushed the envelope always further than anybody. I mean, in the south of France, Bobby was seeing Natalie Delon, who was the former wife of a great French actor named Alain Delon. And I don't know what house they were in. Jagger walked in, and Bobby and Natalie Delon were in a bathtub together, naked, filled with champagne. The bathtub, not the two of them naked. Although I'm sure a lot <laughs> of it was going. And Jagger said to Bobby, you know, even I don't live like this. And Bobby ran through money, spent every dime he ever had, he was an explosion wherever he went, and he was uncontrollable. Yes. And he was Keith's guy. There Keith, was gasoline and, and a match. Because he and Keith could run together. <laughs> yeah. He could keep he up could with keep Keith. He could keep up. And yeah. so it's interesting, right? So within this really tiny world, there are subgroups. I mean, Mick wouldn't have gone out at night. Never with, would have hung with Bobby With Bobby? Keith. You know, anything. No. You could wind up in jail. Gasoline and a match is an apt description, considering Keith and Bobby very nearly burnt down the mansion. It happened one night, or morning, or whatever, when the duo were holed up in the bathroom, the preferred refuge for high-profile drug users when the setting becomes a little too public. They're sitting on the floor, just relaxing alongside the toilet, as one does. Then it all starts to get a bit smoky. With considerable effort, they swivel their necks to the floor in search of an errant cigarette ash. Seeing none, they resume their position, but then the haze starts to thicken. Suddenly everything is blank and gray. Where's Keith? Where's Bobby? There are bangs on the door and beeps on the ceiling. Hey, hey, anyone in there? The place is on fire. What's he talking about, man? The door bursts open and serious looking men in black suits toss buckets of water on the heavy drapery which is fully ablaze directly behind them. Instead of feeling gratitude, Keith is enraged at the intrusion. We could have done that ourselves, he spits, pupils pinned. How dare you burst in on our private affair? Once again, no one was sure if he was joking or not. But soon everybody cooled out, and it became just another chapter in the saga of Keith and Bobby on the road. Keith claimed to have forgotten all about it when asked by Robert Greenfield. 
destroyed in the process of lightening up the mansion? Nothing got damaged, as far as I know. Particularly, it might have got untidy. Please tell me about a fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, one of those, uh, yeah, a dre- one of those towel, uh, towel up the light fire. dressing gowns sort of uh, smouldered for a few hours. But there was no damage to the actual uh, fittings and the decor. Heff also downplayed the incident when questioned about it by Robert Greenfield. I mean, if what you're asking is, did I have any fear before the fact or during the fact okay. that they might uh, leave the place in, in some right. level of physical shambles. Excellent. <laughs> uh, I suppose the thought might have crossed one's mind since that would be part of the concern about having a really far out rock group. And then my reaction to what actually occurred, of course, was just the opposite because there wasn't any of that. There was uh, no physical damage. None that I'm aware of, and I'm sure I would have been aware of it. Heff's private notebook tells a different story, offering a comprehensive list of the destruction left in the stone's wake. White rug in the red and blue bathroom was burnt and needed to be replaced. The toilet seat was also burnt and had to be replaced. Two bath mats and four towels were also burnt. Red room chair and couch are stained, possibly to the point of needing reupholstering. Red room bedspreads also badly stained. Mm, sometimes it's best not to ask. Though Keith could never be accused of openly giving a damn, he would admit in his memoir to feeling a sense of embarrassment and even shame over his antics. You don't say, okay, we're going to have a party tonight. It just happened. It was a search for oblivion, I suppose, though not intentionally. Being in a band, you're cooped up a lot. And the more famous you get, the more of a prison you find yourself in. It's the convolutions you go through just to not be you for a few hours. The only person who didn't sanction Keith's buffoonery, or the general absurdity of the Playboy Mansion, was Stone's drummer, Charlie Watts. Unlike the others, he never came around on the place. The guards almost didn't let him in the night they arrived, and once they did, he turned right around and left, preferring to stay at supposedly lesser accommodations down the street. He wrote in his diary that night, at this point in the proceedings, I cannot fault the luxury, but I also cannot stand it. Sure, he'd swing by the mansion at nights to hang with the others, but fundamentally, he felt that Keith had the right idea when he almost burnt it down. Everything about the mansion just offends him, especially the excess. While 40-plus members of the STP horde are content to gorge themselves on champagne and lobster tails and quaaludes as if they've been born into such situations, Charlie makes a point of paying for everything he takes. Moreover, he's a married man, And unlike Mick, he meant it. According to his bandmate Bill Wyman, this made life among the bunnies uncomfortable. I think the most offensive thing to Charlie was there were so many girls around trying to pick you up. Well, I mean, I was offensive to me in some sense. That might sound ridiculous, but it was very chauvinistic, both sides. It had nothing to do with who you were. I mean, you only had to be, you only had to walk to a bar for ten minutes, and three chicks came around, doing, but it's, talking, it, you know, and, and they knew that I was with my girlfriend. You know, they they knew Charlie. Uh, well, they soon found out that Charlie didn't want to know about it. But then you'd still have to get. You'd still have to go through that position with the 50 or whatever it was before everybody cottoned on to you were or you weren't interested, whatever the case. Charlie instantly sized up that the whole Playboy Mansion thing was a celebrity situation, and that just wasn't for him. Let Mick deal with that stuff. It made him feel like a piece of meat. Out of all the stones, 
Charlie's still very much the person that he was before it all began. He doesn't buy the notion that to be a stone automatically meant to be a star. So I very much want to talk about Charlie for all the obvious reasons. And he was so different on the tour. He was always so different on every tour. Um, and and, and my initial memory of Charlie is on the English tour. Uh, after the first show, which was in Newcastle. And Mick was in the lobby of the hotel where we stayed, being interviewed by BBC television, probably the local. They had the lights and the, the, the perfect BBC guy, you know, with the suit and the accent, interviewing Mick, is this your last tour then? You know, and Mick was, you know, a circle of people, circled by watching this in the lobby, man, whoa. And I'm standing there watching them, watching him, watching, you know. And all of a sudden, Charlie appears. <clears throat> and he's kind of bent over and he's creeping around the outside of the circle. And he's saying, who is that? Is that someone we should know? Is he famous? And Jagger, <laughs> it's, it's, he hears this. And he's maintaining the Jagger face in the camera. Meanwhile, Charlie's taking the piss. He's like, you know, I'm laughing my ass off because here's Charlie saying, oh, you know, like mocking the persona. Okay, so on the American tour, uh, Charlie was just, he's, to me, he was the great sweetheart in the band. And I think beyond all else, he was the adult in the room at all times. He always felt a little different. As he told Greenfield, I was never a teenager, man. I'd be off in the corner talking about Kierkegaard. I always took myself seriously. That streak continued. For him, the STP tour was serious business. The only thing is, I don't think that the tour of America was drugs and sex. Was it? it might have been to some people. It wasn't for me, man. It was I think like it was a lot of things. I think it was, I saw places that... Well, all right, but don't, I ain't in there, am I? Yeah. What was it about? I mean, was, it wasn't the greatest... For me, it was sitting in the fucking room this big, less than this some nights, and fucking waking up and going to work, man. That's really what it was about to me. Well, it was more than just working. I mean, there's a lot of... There's a lot of bullshit which other people pull to me. Yeah. Was a lot of, was a lot of happiness, too? Or, I mean, oh, sure. You know, the, of the happiness is obvious. I wouldn't be doing it. A lot of mad things. I mean, like, oh, that's happiness. Yeah. He also didn't get carried away with all of the stuff going on around us. That just didn't seem to affect him at all. He was in his own head. He, would, he could have a conversation about jazz with him at any point, but none of that other stuff around him really affected him very much. He didn't care. He couldn't be bothered, yeah. man. He just wanted to play. And the greatness, and I didn't see it that much in uh, the American tour, but on the English tour, Keith would charge towards the drum kit when he wanted Charlie to pick it up. And he, I could hear him because I'd be standing by the piano, you know, was calling, Charlie, pick it up, man, you know. And Charlie was, everybody knows this, like, you know, they're great drummers. But I have to put Charlie up there. Nobody played like him. He did not, he was not a rock drummer, and he would have been the first person to say that. They recruited Charlie because he was so well-known in London. They wanted him as their drummer. And Bill Wyman got in because he had the amps. <laughs> it's true. One by one, the rest of the band started to see it Charlie's way. They began to feel trapped in the Pleasure Dome and suffocated by it all. What I found, the worst thing about that place was you couldn't look out the windows, really. It was always dark. I should think so that nobody else could look in. I would think that was the original one. But no, it, it was kind of very dark. 
the, the whole place, isn't it? And it's very difficult to actually, so you couldn't stick your head out a window and go, <laughs> you know, fresh air. That's where the window up and the sun come in. It wasn't kind of like that. You never thought that that was possible, and it, and it wasn't hardly, you know. This like you being empty somewhere, I mean, you know, fantasy or something? I just think there was no love in it. I felt it was very uh, sterile, you know. Yeah, exactly. There was no personal feeling there. But Charles said a great thing, he said it was hospitality without a host. Yeah, but that's what I'm trying to say. It was, there wasn't any love. The dark vibe that had greeted their arrival starts to reemerge and curdle into paranoia. A pervasive rumor circulates through the STP squad that Hefner has hidden cameras in all the bedrooms, secretly videotaping the ongoing sexual Olympics for his own private consumption. The theory's got legs. Mick Jagger, the world's number one sex fantasy object, and Hef, the ultimate voyeur. It's too perfect. Hef gets testy when Greenfield asks him about it. For just a moment, the mask of the genial Midwestern media mogul begins to slip. A lot of people I've spoken to uh, who were in the house, again, it's a story that I've been told several times by several people, felt that, uh, felt the surveillance in the house. And also, uh, several of them are certain that uh, some of their more outstanding sexual performances are on film or tape. So it's really true. It's really true. The Stones are as guilty of accepting the fantasies of the Playboy fantasy as John Q. Public. Well, this, I haven't got this from the Stones themselves, but I know they oh, were aware of that. They thought, well, they were... Complete there. bullshit. That's true. But complete bullshit that has existed, particularly where the house is concerned, since almost the moment that I first moved into it. Uh, over and over again. I used to have, a, it's replaced now, but before I had the round bed, I used to have a bed up against the wall, and there was an, a recessed in the ceiling reading light. Mm-hmm. And ladies would... And would be absolutely certain that there was nothing to it whatsoever. I mean, you know the complete fantasy that, I mean, you have everything well, well, taped and then you view for it. What? Well, well, uh, now let me say, I do have videotape equipment. I mean, uh, videotape is for moving pictures what the Polaroid is for still pictures in terms of, you know, shoot your own movie. shoot your own thing in the realest sense of the word. Uh, certainly I use them uh, for that purpose from time to time. But certainly also... There's a great voyeur fantasy related to me. That, that is, is completely non-existent. I enjoy visual sex in, in the sense of, you know, an erotic film or something, in a context of if I'm grooving with a lady or something, but as a replacement for... Because, because among other things, I guess it's because I really don't live through other people's lives. I wouldn't replace... Okay. That's one of, the, for myself, the great pleasures of whatever, you know, the the life, my own life, and, and the success of it, which is that it, it was a fulfillment of my own fantasy beyond anything I could have imagined. My fantasy isn't to be Mick, or it's a, that is so far removed from... Well, that is a fantasy, of course, is that you would, I mean, Mick being everybody's sex object fantasy, is that you would, of course, have videotapes of Mick fucking. See, I'm my sex fantasy. <laughs> There would be a high price for the excess. Quaaludes, the Playboy Mansion's party pill of choice, was used by predators to sexually assault an untold number of women within those walls. Just a year after the Stones' visit, 23-year-old bunny Adrian Pollock fatally overdosed on the drug, sparking an investigation by Chicago law enforcement officials. They'd find bowlfuls of cocaine and pills. The legal ramifications were big, But as usual, Hefner had the women in his service do the dirty work. Tragically, the woman who had gotten 
us in to a great degree and who loved what I had written in Rolling Stone. God love her. Who was that? Bobby Arnstein. Oh, yeah. And they were trying to make a case against Hefner for cocaine possession. And Bobby would have been the connection. They were trying to get her to flip. And Hefner had given her her career. She loved him. And she killed herself. And rather than, you know, turn state, get off herself, her choice was go to prison, testify against Hefner, and she killed herself. <sighs> Fittingly, she took an overdose of quaaludes. Showtime comes as a relief. Hefner doesn't come. Since the Manson murders, he does his best to avoid large gatherings outside the confines of his mansions. Or at least that's his excuse. His absence isn't exactly mourned as the Stones pull up to the International Amphitheater. Just downwind from the stinking Southside stockyards, Cynthia has managed to see nearly every show on the Stones' North American tour, despite having no transportation, no money, and perhaps most impressively, no tickets. She hitchhikes with a rolled-up sleeping bag and keeps her clothes in a bulging knapsack. She sleeps in the cars that pick her up and washes up in rest stops or college dormitories. She'd planned the Odyssey for months prior to hitching from New York to Vancouver for the first concert. From there, she headed to Seattle and then on down the coast. Her roots look like a Jackson Pollock painting, and often she barely makes it to the venue on time. But once there, she waits. She knows how to wait perfectly. If she waits long enough, she'll always get in. Someone will give her an extra ticket or a guard will turn his head and let her walk by. It was during one of these waiting sessions that she first caught the attention of Robert Greenfield. I am responsible for discovering Cynthia Sagittarius because I was outside the hall. And I saw her and then I would see her and she'd be at the next show. And I started to talk to her and obviously her name was not Cynthia Sagittarius, but hippies renamed themselves in that era. She had some nightmare experiences where a guy pulled a gun and held it to her head, stopped the car, and she, she hitchhiked from one gig to another. She had no money that I could tell, and she was so authentic and so real and so in love with the Stones. Didn't want to meet them, didn't want to go backstage. This is the purity of some fandom, and it's to be respected, okay? Love the music. She looked to be about 27, 28. She wasn't a child, you know? Sweet, just a wholesome person. I don't even think she got high. But the concept of hitchhiking? Yeah, I was just going to say. The in America? And the distances she'd had to go. We weren't talking about just next door. This is hitchhiking big distances from day to day. And getting to get there to, in time for the show. There, yeah. Cynthia lives in the gaps that exist in the network of the straight world. She refuses offers of food, money, and even a backstage meet-and-greet. She just wants to hear the Stones play their music. Makes her feel good. She's a welcomed antidote to the free-for-all back at the Playboy Mansion, where everyone's angling for more food, more drink, more drugs, or more influence. Cynthia has nothing and wants nothing, other than a space to stand while the Stones are on. She survives with her faith, it's her implicit, pure trust in the goodness of people that allows her to carry out her quest. As she says, Krishna provides, or in this case, Robert Greenfield. I said, hey, you know what? 
there's this person. And then from that point on, and God loved them, they left a ticket for her at the box mm. office. And I think I still remember, because again, they never left the building. They weren't out, the last place they wanted to be was outside before the show, but it was a small world and she was easy to find, you know, once I knew her. And I said to her, hey, Cynthia, listen, uh, uh, they want you to see every show. There's a it was like I, it was Christmas. And it was like, I mean, it might be the kindest thing I've ever done for anybody in my entire life. She did the whole tour. Kind of like Deadheads, but by herself. By herself, yeah. Again, we're talking about... And an innocent. So innocent. Yeah. What, what I remember most about her, I was how innocent she appeared. Right? Yeah, she and was. she didn't get high. I no, she was a pure human being. And we're back to... What happens when the Stones come to America? They extract the best, the worst, and everything in between. None of the band are especially sad when it's time to leave the Playboy Mansion. Charlie had been good to go from the start. And now Mick Taylor agreed. I personally had a good time there, you know. Not the kind of place I'd like to live. And so did Bill Wyman. That was great, actually. I wouldn't live there. I wouldn't live there, thank you. A nice place to visit. Enough is enough. Even Hef, that swinging sensei of the erotic arts, was ready for a break. To have four days or three or four days like that as an ongoing lifestyle would be a pain in the ass. I mean, there are other things that you want to do, too. Um, You know, there are quiet romantic relationships that are always, that are very, very important to me. Nominally a journalist, Hefner knew a good story when he saw one. And the Stones' 1972 tour was one for the books. It received a surprising amount of press attention. And, that, and the reason for that, I think, is not to be found in the qualities of their musicianship. The primary reason for that is that there is somehow an awareness of the fact that what they represent is now especially unique because it's uh, coming to an end and they're the only thing that's kind of left and so, you know, it's that. And that was added to also by what happened to the Beatles. Sure. The, the, the Beatles' disintegration makes the mortality of a group much more real also. So it does become more of a unique event in my lifetime. It's the morning of June 22nd, 1972. The STP forces gather themselves together and stagger into the street to begin their retreat from the Playboy Mansion. Behind them, the party is in its death throes. In front, the first gray light of dawn rises over the Chicago roofs. The bloodshot sun has the nerve to announce another day. Everyone reeks of dried sweat, whiskey, and stale cigarette smoke. Passers-by on the street are freshly showered and coloned, hurrying to catch that early bus on the way to their offices. It seems incredible. Outside the mansion, people still have to get up and go to work. Life actually goes on day to day. Imagine.
Stone's Touring Party is written and hosted by Jordan Runtog. Co-executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. Edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown. With additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.